If you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them and turn with me to the book of Romans. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, do not fear. We have blue ones for you uh, either on the end of your pew or the one in front of or behind you. So feel free to grab one of those uh, and open up with me to the book of Romans. Uh, as as Paige told the children this morning, we have been making our way through this this letter now for uh, a little over a year and are in the 11th chapter today. Uh, last week, I was not here with you. Uh, Michael Black, one of our elders, preached to you from Psalm 78 and uh, did a, an excellent job of uh, expositing God's word for you. And I'm thankful to him and, and for his his willingness to to preach God's word and give us some time away. Uh, but it is good for us, good to be back with you this morning. Uh, we missed you last week, and but we are we're glad to, to come back together to worship with you and to get back into Romans together. So this morning, we will be looking at Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. I want to read that for us as we begin. Paul writes these words. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus Save some of them for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you, too, will be cut off. And even they, if if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off If you are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we we know and we come knowing this morning that your word is is both true and good. We we know that the words written on this on these pages are nothing less than your perfect truth. 
and they provide, they bring nothing less than your complete goodness to us. But Father, sometimes we lack the ability to understand them. And sometimes we lack the desire to read them. And sometimes we lack the the ability to comprehend and apply them and to live in light of them. And so, Father, in our lacking, meet us. Provide for us. Give to us what we need. That we may read what is true and good in your word and that we may read these words that Paul has written for us, that we may read them and know not only that they are true and good, but may we desire them, may we understand them, and may we live in light of them. All for your glory and not our own. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we've been working through Romans 11, one of the, the primary features, the primary focuses of this, of this chapter is... Paul's concern over the salvation of Israel. And he's not talking about individual Israelites in most of these verses. He's talking about Israel as a whole, the corporate body of Israel. And if we could, if you'll allow me for a moment to to go back to the beginning of, of really what we've, this section of Romans that we've been talking about, going all the way back to Romans 9 Paul is being, has, has taken great efforts and pains to show how God's salvation, how the gospel of Jesus Christ impacts Israel, as well as the nations, the Gentiles. And so you may remember in Romans 9, he, he talks about God's sovereignty, his, his electing purposes, how God saves those whom he chooses to save and he hardens those he chooses to harden. And in Romans 10, we, we saw how the gospel did, in fact, and it was preached and proclaimed to Israel, that they were not ignorant of this truth, of this message, but they heard it. But the reality is that in their hearing and in their receiving the gospel, they rejected the gospel. And they turned away from it and said, Jesus is not the Messiah. This message is not from God. This is not true. And we refuse to believe this. And so Paul begins with a question in Romans 11, verse 1. Does all of this mean, does Israel's rejection of the gospel, does this mean that God has rejected Israel? And of course, Paul says, by no means. And we looked at this a, a few weeks ago as, as he talks about how God has preserved and saved a remnant from among Israel. But that in Paul's generation and in every generation since, all the way through today, among the people of Israel, God is saving a small remnant, a portion, a selection. And he is calling out of Israel this remnant generation after generation after generation and bringing them into the people of God, the church, through faith in Christ. And then two weeks ago, as we looked at verses 7 through 10, we realized why it was only a remnant. Why wasn't God bringing all of Israel into the fold? Why wasn't all of Israel believing the gospel? And it's not because Israel was foolish and denying and and hard-hearted. But it was actually that God had intentionally and actively hardened the hearts of Israel. That God had taken steps to give them a spirit of stupor. That he had taken, taken steps to blind their eyes and to block their ears and to make their hearts hard. So that they would stumble and so that they would fall. So that they would trip up over this gospel and refuse to believe it. 
And this morning, as we come into our, our passage, the primary focus, the, the main overarching theme that Paul is trying to get at is, does Israel's stumbling, does their hardening, does their failure to believe the gospel, does this mean that Israel as a people will be lost forever? Or to put it another way, will this hardening of God on Israel, will it last forever? And if it does, will Israel, the Old Testament covenant people of God, will they be spent? Will they be cast into hell with the rest of the unbelieving world? And it may seem kind of odd for us to spend our time in worship this morning talking about the salvation of Israel. And how how Jews today relate to the gospel and what their relationship to the New Testament is and how we can do this, especially considering that, to my limited knowledge, I don't believe we have any Jews here among us, that we are, in fact, all Gentiles. And so what then does the salvation of Israel mean to a group of Gentiles? And I think it matters very much to us. I think it should matter very much to us. Because the salvation of Israel matters because the faithfulness of God to his promises matter. You see, if Israel, to whom God promised to always be faithful, that if God made the promises in the Old Testament, which he did, that he would one day save this nation, that they were his people, and that he would never abandon them and never forsake them and always remember them. If Israel is cast into hell for eternity, then God's word and promises to Israel has failed. And if his word and promises to Israel has failed, then what assurances do we have that they will not fail for us? See, salvation of Israel matters a great deal because the faithfulness of God matters a great deal. And if we are to hold and have any any hope of assurance in this life, any faith and foundation that we can stand on, that this word, that the promises of God are sure, then we need to be clear about where Israel stands both now and today and in the future. And whether or not God will be faithful to his promises. Because we can't just say that God's just going to work it all out in the end and that's okay, that's good by me. Because this isn't security when we say things like that. That's not assurance. That's fingers crossed and hope we get lucky. That's nothing. (laughs) Understanding Romans 11 matters. And it gives us this inside look into the sovereign saving purposes of God. We get to see in these verses how and why God chooses to save people. And how and why in the manner and timing All of it, how he chooses to do it, why he chooses to do it, the timing that he chooses to do it in. That's what Romans 11 is about. And so with that, as we begin, there's two things that we need to come into these verses already knowing. The first is that God has saved a remnant from Israel in every generation. And then second, the reality that for most of Israel... From Paul's day until today, for most of Israel, Israel has experienced a hardening from God. Which leaves us this very important question that begins our passage. Does this hardening mean that Israel will be lost forever? 
Will they remain hardened to the gospel and be condemned for all eternity? Or will the people of the Old Testament, God's covenant people, will they ever believe the gospel of Jesus and be saved? That's that's the question that this passage is asking. And what Paul, how Paul answers it is he unfolds two features and two steps in a process of salvation of God's sovereign plan. And so we're going to go through these two steps and then give you a few ways that this passage impacts the way we live. So step number one, Israel was cut out so Gentiles could be brought in. Israel was cut out so Gentiles could be brought in. Paul clarifies this issue with his his go to response, uh, typically in these matters. We've seen this throughout Romans where Paul asks a question that he assumes we already know the answer to. And so he asks it and then he answers it with this emphatic, by no means, absolutely not. What a foolish and silly question to even be thinking. And so what Paul is doing, he's asking, he's saying, does Israel's hardening mean they will be condemned forever? That's the question he asks in verse 11. He says, did they, did Israel stumble? We can go back to verse 10 and see that the word stumbling there. Did they trip? Did they stumble over Christ in order that they might fall or be condemned? And Paul says, by no means. And then, then he goes on to show this purposeful working of a sovereign God. Look, look at verse 11 here with me. He says, rather, through their trespass, that is, through their sinful rejection of Jesus as Messiah, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You see, it is because Israel rejected the gospel that the gospel goes to the nations. And Paul knew this firsthand. He experienced this dynamic firsthand. You may remember his his missionary journeys in the book of Acts. Everywhere that Paul went, every new city he entered, the very first place he went to proclaim the gospel was the synagogue. He went to Israel first. And as he would go into Israel, he, he as he would go into these synagogues, he would proclaim the gospel. He would proclaim this message that he lays out in Romans. And he would proclaim to them the gospel that Jesus has come, that he has died for their sins, that he has been raised to new life, and that all who believe in him, whether Jew or Gentile, all who believe will be saved. And every time he comes and every time he preached, this is the exact same thing that he follows, this pattern to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. But with that pattern came the same results in just about every city he went. In fact, in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. And and he goes into the city of Antioch and they go into the synagogue there in the city and they preach the gospel and the Jews reject the gospel. And Paul, it says there in Acts 13, it says they spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to Israel, to the Jews. But since you thrust it aside and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. This is exactly what Paul is saying here in Romans 11. Israel rejected the gospel and in that rejection, it was done so that the gospel would be taken to the nations, to the Gentiles. 
But see, Paul doesn't stop here at just saying this. Instead, he, he, he wants to make sure that we really understand how this has worked and what God is doing by hardening Israel so they reject the gospel, so that the gospel will go to the Gentiles. And so to help us understand this plan, this very high concept, often difficult thing for us to understand, Paul gives us an illustration. And he gives this illustration in the verses 17 through 24. And, and he looks to farming to provide something that will help us better understand it. Now, I'm sure many of you here may know lots more about grafting than I do. I, I, I had to do some research to make sure that I understood it this week. Because I frankly don't have much experience with fruit trees. And let me let me clarify that. I don't have any experience with fruit trees. But I do know what grafting is now. And for those that, that don't know what it is, like I was a few days ago, let me explain grafting. Grafting is a technique that allows you to merge two or more different trees into one single tree. It's actually incredibly fascinating. To, to do this, to graft, you take your healthy tree, the, the one with the strongest root system, the one with the, the most solid foundation, the trunk that is healthiest, and you take that tree and you leave it alone. You make sure it stays in the ground, that it stays healthy, that it has a, a good source of life to it. But you go to the top of this tree, this healthy, strong tree, and you cut off some of the branches. And as you cut off these branches, you leave a, a wound here on this on this tree. Trees get wounds. And like we do, trees, when they get wounds, work to heal themselves. They release sap and they release uh, the, their, their cells to, to form protective barriers that will heal that wound that you just made. But in grafting, before that tree can heal itself, before that tree can make the wound disappear, you take branches from another tree that you've cut off. And you bring them in and you bind them to the wound that you've just made. And as this first strong tree realizes that it's wounded and realizes that it's been cut and it sends these signals and it sends the sap and the cells and everything that it does to heal itself, it realizes there's another branch there that is also wounded and it heals itself to that branch. Thinking this is part of us. This is part of the original tree. I have to bring it in and make it whole. And so the tree, by God's incredible natural design, heals itself, but actually heals bringing in an outside source of branches, thinking that it belongs to itself. It's, it's remarkable. And in fact, there's a tree in California today. It is called the tree of 40. And the reason it's called the tree of 40 is because on this one single fruit tree, are 40 different kinds of fruit. That you can walk around this one tree and on one branch grab a peach and on the next branch grab a lemon and on the next branch grab an apricot and on the next branch grab an apple. Over and over and over again, you can grab from one single tree 40 different kinds of fruit because of grafting. Because they have grafted in 40 different branches into one single tree. I mean, it's incredible. Grafting is remarkable that this could even be done. 
But this practice has been done for millennia, and it is clearly incredibly effective. But what Paul is talking about here in Romans 11 is not a tree of 40. He's not talking about a tree with an olive tree with 40 different kinds of olives on it. But he's actually talking about a tree that has a member from every tribe, nation, and tongue hanging from its branches. We're not talking about a tree of 40 here. We're talking about a tree of thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And that this tree, that this, this tree, this foundation that began with Israel is being pruned and grafted by the master gardener. And that he is cutting off branches so that he can bring in branches from other outside foreign trees and bring them in and attach them and it become as if they were part of it from the very beginning. You see, it's this tree that, that Paul describes, this, the root of this tree, the strength, the foundation, the bedrock, are the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. All of the Old Testament promises form the trunk of this tree. And as this tree grew stronger and it flourished over generations, as the branches began to grow out of this tree, Israel, God's people, Israel. Branches grew. Generations grew. Israel grew and flourished. Generation after generation, limb after limb, branch after branch. But when the gospel came through Christ, the branches of Israel stopped producing fruit. They, they rejected the Messiah and they were cut off from the tree. I mean, is this not what Jesus teaches his disciples in John 15? I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and dies. And he, the branches are gathered. They are thrown into a fire and burned. God cut off the branches of Israel. And in doing so, he left a wound in this tree. But in that wound... God takes branches from the nations, from the Gentiles, from other people, groups and tribes and tongues from every corner of the world. And he takes these branches and he brings them and he attaches them to that wound in this tree. And the tree heals these branches and it includes these branches and begins nourishing and feeding and supplying these new branches as if they always belong there from the very beginning. And what that means is that now that that as Gentiles, having been grafted in, we now feed off of the root of this tree. The, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the promises that God made to them long ago. Now apply to us and feed us and sustain us and give us nourishment. That's what Paul says in verse 18. Remember, it is not you who support the root Gentiles, but the root that supports you. The promises that God made in the Old Testament, you can claim them. They belong to you because you've been grafted in. And these promises are as certain and sure for you as every New Testament promise is. These promises sustain us and they hold us fast in faith. 
church, the, the reason that you and I, that we, that we are a part of God's people is because God cut off Israel in order that he could graft us into the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We do not belong apart, uh, apart from this foundation. We do not separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. We belong to the people of the Old Testament. We belong to the promises of the Old Testament simply because God has grafted us into it. He has brought us where we never belonged in the first place, where we could never hope to get into from the beginning. And yet here we stand. And this truth This understanding of God's plan, first and foremost, should lead us as Gentiles to truly marvel at the grace of God. How could we ever hope to have belonged to the people of God were it not for his grafting? Were it not for him doing this, we would still be out in the wild somewhere without hope of ever making it into the garden. And while we marvel at this grace, as we read passages like Romans 11, which give us this inside look into God's plan of salvation, this should lead us to a sense of awe at who he is and what he does and how he does things from from the beginning of time to the end. Because the reality is that you and I as believers, as people of this book, we have front row seats. Watching and witnessing what God is doing among his people. We get to see as God continues to graft in people into this tree. As he continues to to bring outsiders in and welcome them with open arms through the gospel. We get front row seats to this. And we don't are left in the dark as to wondering what God is doing and how is he doing it. Who's who's he saving and who's he. We are told this is the plan. Watch and witness. Israel was cut off so that you could be brought in. Step two in this stage, this this plan of God's salvation, is that Israel's return will mean greater blessings for everyone. Israel's return means greater blessings for all. You see, I I think we need to understand that Israel will not be cut off forever. That while God cut off the branches of Israel to graft us in, those cut off branches will not wither and die and be cast into the fire. But those branches will be brought back into this tree. That their exclusion had a purpose so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. But that purpose will eventually be fulfilled. It will be complete. And then Israel will no longer be hardened. But they will instead believe the gospel and they will be saved. And with that, I think as we come to understand that, we need to see and to know that God loves Israel. They are his people. His cutting them off, his hardening was not out of a lack of love for them. But it was all according to his divine will and his his divine purposes. They are his people. Israel are his people just as much as you and I are his people. 
They are the ones at whom he has set his love and his grace and his kindness for generations. He has not and cannot so easily discard them. And a big part of God's love for them, uh, this, this unfailing, always and forever love that he has for Israel, has to do with his promises to them. Again, this is what Paul is referring to as the root of this tree. If the root is holy, if the patriarchs were chosen by God and declared holy and righteous, then these branches, these descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, these generations later of Israel... And these branches also receive these promises and these assurances that God made to them, to the forefathers. And so God cannot forsake Israel forever because they do belong to Abraham. And he promised Abraham. And so with all of that, we must come to the same conclusion that Paul reaches here in Romans 11. Israel will not remain cut off forever. But God has a plan to graft them back into this tree. And this grafting for Israel is the exact same process, the exact same method, the means as it is for the Gentiles. It is done by grace through faith in Christ. No other means. Look at verse 23. Paul says this, and even they, talking about Israel, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For not because Israel has the power to do it, not because they have the authority or the, the ability to obey to do it, but for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? See, what Paul is saying is he's using, again, this metaphor of grafting and this metaphor, this comparison between a cultivated olive tree, an olive tree that a gardener has been working on from the very first seed that was planted. How he has shaped its branches, how he's kept in check its, its weeds and its growth and its health, and he's managed and cultivated this olive tree. And yet on the outside wall of his garden is a wild olive tree. And it is... Overgrown, It is wild. It grows every which way that it wants to. Some years it produces. Some years it doesn't. It is just out there. We, are the, we as Gentiles are the wild olive tree in this example. We were outside and God cut us and brought us in and grafted us into this tree that he's been cultivating from the beginning. But the branches that he has cut off from this cultivated tree still belong to this tree. And God has the power, the ability, the desire to graft these branches that he's cut off and to put them back on this tree. Because this is where they belong. He promises that this is something he's going to do. He's going to bring Israel back. But the question that we must ask is, what does that mean for Gentiles when he does? I mean, it could be disastrous. If we're following logic and we say, all right, for Gentiles, for us to be brought in, they had to be cut off. And now you're saying they're going to be brought back in. Well, does that mean we're going to be cut off? But it's not. This is, in fact, the opposite of what Paul says. 
Paul says that instead of disaster, we are promised even greater blessing. Let me, let me point your attention to just a few verses here. First, verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Israel's return to the fold means greater blessings for Gentiles. But what are those greater blessings? Well, look at verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? You see, the greater blessing that comes when Israel is brought back is nothing less than life from the dead. Paul is referring to the future resurrection, the day that is coming when Christ returns and he calls out all of those who have died. He raises them up from the dead. And if we look ahead to a verse that we'll study next week, we'll we'll see this even more clearly. Look at verse 25. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You see, when we put all of Paul's argument in Romans 11, we put it all together. This is what we see. God hardened Israel so that they would reject the gospel. And so that the gospel would then be taken to the Gentiles. And then, once the full number of the Gentiles that God has elected to save, once they are brought in by the gospel, by faith in Christ, once they are brought in and grafted into this tree, God will then turn back to Israel. He will relent of his hardening. And the people that he cut off will believe in Jesus and will be brought back in. And when that happens, there will be the resurrection from the dead. There will be new eternal life that is given to all who believe. There will be restoration. There will be new heavens and new earth. There will be everything that we are promised will be fulfilled. This is God's plan of salvation. And I think we need to understand and we need to see this plan as it is being worked out. Because we do have front row seats to this. And it is a beautiful thing for us to witness. But we also must ask why this passage matters for us. Because God doesn't just teach us things so that we can better know things. He teaches us so that we can better know things and then live in light of that better knowledge. And so what does Romans 11, 11 through 24 mean for our lives today? Let me give you quickly just three ways. First, we are to rouse jealousy. Rouse jealousy. Notice that Paul brings up this word jealousy twice in this section. He says in verse 11 that through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And then in verses 13 and 14, he says, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. See, Paul viewed his ministry and his calling by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles as a way to drive his fellow Israelites to jealousy in the hopes that even just some of them in that jealousy would come to believe the gospel. And that may sound strange to to, for for a pastor to stand up here before you and say the this passage teaches us to make other people jealous. It's weird. But we need to understand what kind of jealousy we're talking about here. 
Because we often, while we often view jealousy as a bad thing, as a sinful thing, and often it is, that's not what Paul has in mind here. This jealousy is a good thing, not an evil thing. The goal of jealousy, this, this goal of, of, of creating jealousy, of rousing jealousy in Paul's ministry, is one where he is hoping and praying that Israel will see the blessings and the promises of God, the same promises that Israel has claimed for generations, he is hoping that they will witness these promises being given to other people and not to them. And that they will see these promises being applied and claimed by outsiders, by Gentiles. And that by seeing this, this will prompt within them a deep-seated yearning, a craving, a jealousy to possess what they have always been promised, and yet they don't. It is a way of living and proclaiming and believing that makes other people, that makes non-believers say, I want that. Why do you have it and I don't? And, and how do I then get it? And this is something that we as believers must also grasp and practice like Paul did. We must live in such a way that non-believers look at us, at the peace given to us through faith in Christ, at the freedom, the forgiveness, the joy, the grace, all of it. To look at our lives and say, I don't know why you have that and I don't. But I know that I desperately want that. How do I get it? And the only way, the only true way, we could stand here and we could list all of these various tasks that we could do and ways that we could try to, to rouse this jealousy in other people, but really it comes down to one simple thing. You want to rouse jealousy in other people, then you show them that Christ is Above all else, the greatest treasure in your entire life. That's it. That he is more valuable, more precious, more admirable, more... He is, he is more precious to you than anything else in the entire world. And when you and I begin to see Christ as the treasure that he is, then the rest of the world is going to look at us and go... I don't know how you have that treasure, but I know that I want it. That's jealousy. And this is a jealousy that leads people to salvation. And so I'll ask, church, are you living in a way that will rouse jealousy in the people around you? When people look at your life and the way you speak and the way you live and the, the things that you do, the things that you talk about, all of it. When people watch you, will they, will they be jealous for what you have in Christ? Don't be mistaken. This jealousy is no small matter in winning souls to Christ. Paul believed that this jealousy had the potential to save some of the members of Israel. And if it could do that for them, then surely it can do it for the people around us too. So put on display all the blessings and the promises of the gospel so that others will want what you have. Show them what you have. Show them what Christ has given you and pray that this jealousy will lead them to faith in Christ. So rouse jealousy. Second, remember grace. Well, look, we're, we're Gentiles here, every one of us. 
And the reality is that our people for generations have existed outside the covenant blessings of God. And yet we've been grafted in. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And the same grace that grafted you in is at work in the people around you. And God is still working to graft people in by his grace. Paul tells us in verse 22 to note the kindness and the severity of God. To keep in mind that God is severe towards those who have fallen, but he is kind, he is gracious to those that he grafts in. And then he calls on us to continue in this kindness, to continue in this grace. Church, don't forget the grace of God. Needing his grace is not a weakness, it's a necessity. So remember it and continue in it. Third, finally, resist pride. Resist pride. I found myself asking the the same question over and over again this week. Why is this the way that God chooses to save people? Why is this how he orchestrated his plan of salvation? It really just doesn't make sense to me. Why would you bring a people in, cut them off so you could bring other people in, and then bring those original people back? Doesn't make sense. But then I came up with one answer. And it's an overarching theme that Paul is encouraging the Gentiles to avoid. Do not be arrogant. Do not be proud. And really, this plan of salvation undercuts pride for both Jew and Gentile. You see, for Israel, it would be easy for them to think that God would save them, that he would have to save them simply because they belong to Abraham. You owe me. It's in my blood. You can't deny me, God. I belong to Abraham. So you have to save me. It's pride. And so to speak against this pride, to work against this pride, God hardens Israel. And he cuts them off temporarily. So that they will come to know that their salvation does not depend on their race, but it depends on grace. And they could boast in so much of their history and they could boast in the covenants of God. But through this plan, God cuts through their pride and says, the only way that you are saved is because I am gracious to you. The only way that you are saved is because you have placed faith in Christ. Not because of who you are, Israel. And for Gentiles like us, we know that salvation is not ours to claim. We, we have no claim to make on God. We cannot say, I belong to Abraham. I've obeyed the law. I've done this, that, and the other. We can't make it. And so our pride doesn't look the same as Israel's pride. But rest assured, we still have it. You see, our pride manifests differently. Our pride as Gentiles is to lord over the Israelites their failure and our successes. Their losses and our gains. I think one of the clearest ways we see this today is is the way that we read the Old Testament passages, especially those passages where Israel fails. We look at their idolatry, their false worship, their legalism, all of it, and we say, how could they be so foolish? I would never have done that. It's pride. Christian, the Old Testament is not given to you as a means to highlight your successes and Israel's failures. It is given to display the common trait that all humans have had since Eden. That we are all of us sinful and foolish, idolatrous and selfish, proud and broken. And we all of us need a savior. 
Do not be arrogant towards Israel. Whether as you're reading about them in the Old Testament or as you engage with Israelites today, you are no better than they are. Do not be arrogant. But understand that you are here, you've been grafted in, not because of who you are, but because of God's grace to you. God's plan of salvation is is difficult for us to grasp. I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. It's not how we would have done it. It's beyond our scope of understanding. But this we must remember. God's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways greater than our ways. Christian, you are called Christian because you belong to the people of God. And you belong to that people because you've been grafted in by grace. So live in a way that rouses jealousy for those that are, have not yet been grafted in. Remember the grace that's been given to you and resist pride. For it is not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God so that no one may boast.